All right. Turn in your Bibles a couple different places. First, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. Let's go back to verse 12 because we want to talk about the concept here in verse 12 as we're bringing this over. Um, Of course, we're going back to the subject of sexuality. uh, And we're starting a second portion, a second part of that. We talked about the ontological question of sexuality and and we asserted one single truth. Sex is something that was created by God and therefore He is Lord over it. And that's the very first thing you have to think about when the subject of sex is talked about is He is Lord and we're not. He has authority and we don't. And we looked at it in that paradigm and and we talked about all the distinctions trying to be blurred by our culture where all things are one and there are no distinctions between this and that. There is one distinction that cannot be done away with. The Lord, creator, creature distinction. And that is important to any conversation. Now, I want to get into a second portion. We're not, now not going to talk about the ontological, the ontology of sex, but the morality of sex. That it's something that exists in another thesis, antithesis, uh, or binary, if you will, not of Lord creation, but this time drawing from that, it exists in a moral context of right and wrong. And there is no blurring of those lines to say, there cannot be a blurring of the lines to say that there are neutral things that are neither right or wrong, scripturally speaking. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Meat for the belly, and belly for the meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. And now here comes a moral statement. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord the body. And we've already talked about the purposes here. When we talked about the ontology, I want to talk about the morality here. The body is not for fornication. Now what's that word fornication mean? Well, that's the general term to talk about immorality, sexual immorality. And it's an understanding that is built on the law and what the law taught. The New Testament writers were not writing in a vacuum. They were writing with an Old Testament understanding of what was right 
and what was wrong in this area. And when they spoke of sexual immorality, fornication is the word we have right here in our translation, they were speaking with that understanding of what the law taught. Now go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want us to understand the underpinning of our under, the, I want to bring forth that the underpinning of the law tells us what is right and what is wrong. And these terms were built on that understanding. He says in verse 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. For this is the will of God. What we have to come to an understanding about is that God has spoken. I hope everyone here believes that. That God has indeed spoken. God has revealed truth to us. Not just metaphysical truth like 2 plus 2 equals 4 and uh, things of that nature. But moral truth has been revealed by God. This is the will of God, he says. Even your sanctification, that the word sanctification is very simple. You are set apart for God to live a certain way. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, sexual immorality. What we said from the very beginning was that this one subject is causing more people to turn their back on God in today's society than anything. And they are doing so contrary, according to this, to the will of God. So antithesis number two, we speak of the subject of sex as that which is good or that which is evil. So, building on what we've already said, I want to get into a subject today that as I was looking at my notes, I realized I have about 25 pages on this uh, subject, and about 10 of them will just introduce the subject, <laughs> and I'm not even going to get through this, uh, the introduction of this, uh, but I do want to bring forth a concept this morning that I think will be helpful for our understanding. So this is more of a teaching than it is a preaching. And I, I know uh, just it's there. I mean, this, I'm going to be in teaching mode more this, this morning or this afternoon. So I want to just kind of introduce the subject of morality and how we understand what is right and wrong regarding this because we're, we're going to be, find that there's two separate poles when it comes to understanding the law of God. There is legalism, and then there's another pole that is even more destructive, and that's antinomianism. I want to talk about those specific terms. What is legalism? Well, legalism is... Uh, 
that everything that is said in the scripture or, or, what, or this pet thing that I say that, that this scripture says is something that is binding for all people in all times and things like that. And then if you're not following this one stricture, you are not right with God and you're not even saved or something to that effect. So that's legalism and we're going to get more into that. And what's antinomianism? Well, you got the word anti, which is against. Nomos, which is law, so against the law, or there is no law, or contrary to the law. Um, to say that there is no law that is binding for the believers. That's ultimately what I want to try to flesh out in the next couple. Well, I don't know. We'll deal with this when I don't have stuff in Mark to deal with. But that's, that's the tension that we have. And we as Christians uh, need to understand how to walk that fine edge where there's a ditch on both sides of the road. So let's dive into this. So the ontological reality that the Lord is over all has given rise also to a second reality or, or a congruent reality that this lies in a moral context. If you take away the creature-creator distinction, uh, there is no God overall. There is no law. All, and as Dostoevsky said, if there is no God, everything is permissible. You can do whatever you want uh, because there is no right. There is no wrong. There is, uh, there, there is no good. There is no evil. And everything is just whatever you want to choose. Or as the book of Judges says, uh, everyone does right in their own eyes. But since that is not so, and the Scriptures and... and the revelation of Christ has given us firm, uh, firm conviction about. Since the Lord is God over all, then we have a moral context. And that moral context is brought forth by what God has revealed in nature and in history. Specifically, what we're wanting to get into is history. What God has spoken, what God has said is right, and what God has said is wrong. Now, ultimately, there is, there, there, there is a move, and there has been a move in the last hundred years, uh, built on teaching of, of people like, uh, not Adolus Huxley, but yeah, uh, yeah Adolus Huxley and, uh, and Carl Jung uh, and others, um, that there is that all religions are basically the same. Y'all have heard this before. This is called a perennial philosophy of religion. A perennial philosophy of religion, and that word perennial, you get this idea of a tree, and this tree's got all these different branches, but it's just one tree, and these branches are just manifestations of that one tree. And they say that is just like religion. So this religion is an expression of this, uh, of this, of this uh, spiritual reality because you really can't say anything about the tree itself because you just say there's different expressions of this one single tree. And therefore, all distinctions that are made in religion, they will say, are, are nonsense, because, or not nonsense, but they're all the same. They're all just different manifestations of the one single truth. Has anybody ever heard anything like that before? This is called perennial philosophy. So, so what this means is, is, have you ever heard the story of the blind men around the elephant? Right? 
So you got these blind men that are all around the elephant and they're trying to describe what they see. Uh, this is kind of a same picture of the, of the branches of the tree, all coming different manifestations of the one thing. So you have all the blind men around the elephant, and one of the blind men is filling the, the belly, and they say, it's a wall. And one of them is filling uh, the, the, uh, one of the legs, and they say, no, it's a tree. And one of them is filling, uh, 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 filling the trunk, and they say, no, it's a, it, it, it's a snake and, uh, or a python. And the one's feeling the uh, tail, and they say, no, it's a rope. And they say that's what religion is, 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 is these faulty understanding of, of what the true spiritual reality is. And, of course, it leads to an ontology that says all is one that we already dealt with. Uh, but there is a truth. There is an elephant. <laughs> and, there, and regardless of what you think about the various blind men that are trying to describe what they are experiencing, they're wrong. The reality was, there was an elephant. And there is a reality to God. There is God that has, that, that we are not dealing with a God that has blinded our eyes and, and we're trying to just feel out by our experience and feel our way to the truth. Our eyes are opened. Our eyes are opened by the fact that God has made himself known. Romans 1, God is known in the things that He has made. And God has made laws. He has given commandments. He is, and those commandments answer to our very consciences. We are not left without light. That's ontological light and that's moral light. And the problem is, is we're sinners who want to do what is wrong. And we, and, we, and we know that because the best way to get us to buy a chocolate cake is to call it sinful, right? <laughs> and, and, man, I really want that. Uh, so we can't hold this perennial philosophy. We can't pretend like the distinctions aren't there. We can't pretend like God hasn't been revealed. We, God has indeed. We can't pretend like, the, uh, well, well, this manifestation is this and this manifestation is that and neither of them are true or both of them are equally true or both of them are equally false. That's not so. There was an elephant. There, was, there, there, there is a truth about it. And... And these religious declarations cannot all be true. God cannot be and not be, for instance. He cannot be personal and non-personal. That's all foolishness of philosophy. But God has indeed revealed Himself. So we're, we're talking about this, this idea that God has spoken and the moral implications of that. When we're dealing with this one subject, you and I know that we're dealing with this reality of right and wrong, good and evil. We know it when we're reading in the Bible, right? Or, or in a magazine or anything, but let's just stick with the Scriptures. When we read about Adam and Eve and they were made, and we read about their relationship, how they were not ashamed in that relationship, we know, and it answers to us, that what we're reading about that relationship was something, what, well, what, what God said about it was good. And then we flip over our pages to something like Judges 18. And here we have the story of, of uh, 
the children of God, by the way, <laughs> uh, acting just as wicked as, as uh, you couldn't tell the difference between them and Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and we have this violent act that happened, uh, this violent sexual act, and we were repulsed by it. We say we know we are looking at something or that, that is wrong. Our consciences tell us that there are no blurring of the lines, that everything about this subject is either right or wrong, is either good or evil. And when we worship the Creator, we must worship Him in that context. One is a fool to hold a perennial philosophy regarding sexual morality just as much as they are, they are, they are to believe a perennial philosophy regarding, regarding the very nature of God Himself. There is good and evil. So now the problem is going to come, how do we speak about this? Because believe it or not, um, there are objections to our categories. There are objections to uh, us saying God said this ba- on the basis of the nature of the law itself. Now, now there's, no con- there, there, there's no controversy for the believer. I think if we ask, almost everyone here would say, and the rest of and those that don't, I'm praying for you, that the law is good. Some, some, some may not want to say that here, but that God's law is good. When I'm reading in Leviticus, when I'm reading in Exodus, when I'm reading in Deuteronomy, when, I, when I'm reading those categories brought over from the Old Testament into the New Testament in the same language, I am saying, and my heart is saying, the law of God is good. Now, that's not controversial for us that are believers. The psalmist summed up the attitude of one's right relationship with God by saying they are those that delight to do the will of God. I hope that's a, I hope that's a description of the people that are here right now, that you delight to do the will of God. Uh, one, that if, you, if we are saved, we want to, we want to please God uh, by keeping His commandments. And 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 tells us, His commandments to us that are saved are not grievous. I, delight, I, I honestly, and I've shared this with you all before, when I was preaching through Romans 13, I got very convicted about the Word of God, uh, specifically about my obedience to uh, the powers that be. <laughs> and I found myself speeding all the time, and I was grieved by the fact that I'm always speeding and breaking the commands of uh, of the laws of, that restrict the speeding limit. And I found that when I was honestly trying to keep God's Word and keep the speed limit, I was much, I was, it was a delight to me. Now, I've fallen since then, and my foot has got heavy again. Please pray for me that I'll get right with God and start keeping the speed limit. But my point is, is we delight to obey our God, Right? And we find this, we find this idea in the scripture, and or this, or, or this truth in the scripture, uh, and and we want to come under His authority. So the command, the commandment, the commandments are not controversial for us. They are expressions of the longing in the heart to honor God. That's why the laws for uh, the, the laws. One of the reasons the law is there for for us to to come under His lordship. Every commandment is an opportunity for us to worship. 
And just, just like with me and the speeding laws, there was an opportunity for me to worship by obeying the speed limit. Uh, and, and it wasn't just an empty idea. If, and when we become cognizant that God has expressed His will in a certain way, that is, confronts us with His Lordship. Do I obey Him or do I not? And that is a good thing for us. We may even find ourselves joyous in the realm of, in that realm because of this truth that when I obey this or when I obey that, I'm honoring Him. Now, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that our understanding of the nature and the scope of God's commands is always uh, grasped. Have you all ever ran into something in God's law? that just kind of left you scratching your head. Like, why is that so? Uh, so so that there, there are some commands that are just like that. Specific commands were given at specific times to specific people uh, that aren't necessarily binding, or not binding at all on us, and we know it's not binding on us. For instance, God said, Abraham, take Isaac to the... I can't keep that command, <laughs> Right? And I'm glad that he, there's nowhere that says, Jason, take Eli to Mount Moriah or something like that. Because I, I would probably struggle with that. But I, I, I know, but it, let, it was no doubt bewildering to Abraham. And we can study that and figure it out. But there are things that make us scratch our head. For, for instance, in Leviticus 19.19, 19, why would God command the Israelites not to sow their fields with mixed types of seeds? Or, in the very same verse, not to wear, not to wear linen and wool mixed. Right? That's bewildering. I don't, I, I don't necessarily understand it. I, I, I know that... Well, let me ask you a question because this is some of the stuff that you're going to find talked about all the time in our culture. Are you sinning by wearing what you're wearing today? Because I know you all have got some mixed cloths. This is not 100% wool, and I'm very thankful that it's not right now because it's starting to burn up in here, (laughs) at least from where I'm standing. Are you all sinning if you're wearing mixed cloths? Now... The mixed seeds, I don't really understand, uh, but, uh, but I imagine a couple of you all have gardens, and do you only have one single thing planted in your garden? You've got several little things in your little garden, right? Are you sinning? Um, I was, I mean, there's hundreds of examples. Uh, this will come up in social media all the time. You Christians say this is wrong, but you don't follow this, but you don't follow this, but you don't follow this. Now, if we are doing those things, are we going against God? And if we could come up with a satisfactory answer, let's say that you and I can come up with a satisfactory answer, such as He is Lord. When I'm looking at something like Leviticus 19, 19, he is Lord, and he desired for the Israelites of that day in all ways to be separated unto him. How would we know whether such commands are relevant for us now? Is this relevant for us right now to be uh, 
this thing about mixed claws and stuff like that. We can easily say that when God judged other nations, for instance, when God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, it was, he never said it was because they were wearing mixed cloths. <laughs> or that they were sowing their seeds with different, their, their fields with various seeds. That's not why he said he judged them. He judged them for, their, for several reasons. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 50 and 51. But he had reasons. And it wasn't these. It, 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 it was specific reasons and we, we, could, we can see that. We can say, well, he judged, when he judged other nations in Leviticus 18, it had specific parameters, reasons why he judged them that were not ambiguous, but yet these are ambiguous. And the believer who has already grasped the truth that God is Lord over all his creatures has no problem thinking in the terms of right and wrong, good and evil. Just understand that not everything we know not 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 everything is directly applicable the controversy and i want to talk more about legalism this morning and i want to try to hurry because i see it's five till but i want to talk a little bit about legalism and then next time we will talk about antinomianism so the controversy arises when less clear ambiguities are carried beyond the threshold of personal opinion. Now, for that time, God said, Israel, this is, I want you to do this and not do this, not do this. There was no reason to believe he, those commands were binding on Gentile nations. So those become points of ambiguities for us. Legalism in its most benign form, says those ambiguities are important, whatever they happen to be. Pick your favorite ambiguity. And they say, that is important. It's so important that we, that we are going to make it a part of our practice, and it's important for everyone to agree with us and keep it as well. For instance, we talked about this when we reached Romans chapter 14. You could search the New Testament over and over and over, and there is no command on what day or what time to, Christians should gather. Now, he deals with this in Romans 14. He says, if one of you observe, want to observe the day, great. If others don't, great. But let each be convinced in his own minds. And let them not judge one another who comes up with another opinion about this ambiguous matter. If one wishes to go to church on a certain day of the week and is convinced in their own conscience that such a thing is right for them to do, and does so with like-minded people, they are rightly living out their faith, being convinced in their own minds and hearts by the Lord, and wanting to... Wanting to praise the Lord through, their, through that obedience, then they are living out their faith correctly. However, since there is no clear command that says Christians must worship on such and such a place at such and such a time, everything here is ambiguous. If that person will say that all who do not practice as they are due are sinning, then they have crossed over into the realm of what we call legalism. 
this is this. Uh, I know we've had a lot of conversations about Christian liberty in the last few years, and this is the, 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 there. There is a there is a place for Christian liberty in our fellowship, and there must always be a place for Christian liberty. And the question on this subject is, how far does that extend? We have to approach certain certain things about the law with Christian charity. So not everyone here is going to have the same opinions about what modesty means, for instance. I pray that we're all trying to seek the Lord's will in it, but not of us all are going to have the same opinions about it. I pray that we'll base our opinions on sound principles of the Word of God, but not all of us are going to have the same opinions. And therefore, there's room for Christian charity and a recognition of Christian liberty there. Does that apply to this subject? They're not... Worse yet, in, in the most malignant form of legalism, they may go about to declare that all who do not practice what we practice are lost and without Christ and even go about to persecute them who do not do as they do. So the argument will be often when we talk about sexuality that that's what we're doing. That when we are saying such things are right and such things are wrong, that we are being legalistic and we are not practicing Christian charity at all. I told you, this is a long introduction. I'm getting somewhere, I promise. It may not be today, but I am getting somewhere. Are we then to declare sexual morality from the Scriptures? Or if we are doing that, are we being legalistic? I, you have to ask. We have to confront it because that's the charge that is constantly coming to the Christian, that they are taking ambiguities... And prescribing those ambiguities as law for all people to follow, and condemning people for not following that, that they that we're simply being legalistic, and add to that hypocritical since we're not following every law. And maybe there are times that a Christian's are being legalistic about this or being hypocritical about this. And the charge of bigotry and the charge of lack of charitableness is a fitting thing. Maybe so. And it behooves us to understand and to know what is and what is not ambiguous in the law. I've already tipped my hat a little bit about this. I've already tipped my hat in this idea that when the New Testament writers wrote about fornication... They were writing with an understanding that came from the law. There's a ditch on the other side of the wrong that wrote it as equally dangerous. It's not good to treat the expressed will of God, and that's what Paul was talking about there in 1 Thessalonians. He says, this is the will of God concerning you in this area. Your sanctification here is important, and that you should abstain from fornication is important. And we cannot take the expressed will of God in direct commands as if they were ambiguous. That's, that's dangerous too. If you are saying that something is ambiguous, that is very clear, then that's not good. 
If we're saying that God, hasn't, that God has not spoken clearly and concisely about this thing, and He has. For instance, thou shalt not commit adultery. Is that ambiguous? Is what Christ said about if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery already in your heart? Is that ambiguous? And for us to say, well, I, again, I, I have these people that, that, that are, that are uh, I don't know what they are, <laughs> but they, they name the name of Christ. And, and I, I have a hard time, if you press them hard enough, they will, they will even say adultery in certain circumstances is perfectly okay. You're just reading the scriptures too legalistically and everything. What is going on here? They are, they are claiming ambiguity where ambiguity does not exist. Isaiah 5.20 I pray that no one here fits in this category. Woe unto them that call good evil and evil good. And we live in such a... In this area specifically, good is evil and evil is good in our culture. And in the minds of the people we talk about, God hasn't said. God hasn't. That's literally what they're trying to. If you pick away at what what the culture is telling us, they're saying God hasn't said anything here. There's nothing clear. There's nothing clear. Uh, and that is also a ditch to avoid. If we are to fail to keep the clear commands of God in our life and go about to teach others that it is acceptable for them to do so, that's bad. That's wrong. One, one thing I want to, be, want to be very clear, and yes, are there's things where you and I are going to have to work out. We're going to have to work out these it, this ambiguities of law and how we approach those. But we have to ascertain what is ambiguous and what is not. What is acceptable and what is not. Because if we say it's ambiguity when it's not, we are encouraging Rebellion against God. Antinomianism is just that, the opposite of legalism. It may seem, it may seem to win friends, and, and it's very popular, and it may seem to salve consciences. It may pat everybody on the back and say, whatever you do is okay. But it is error, and it's bad, it's evil. And it's just, it's just as evil, if not more evil, than legalism that we want to avoid. So we must know what things are clear and what things are not clear. Another wrinkle in the conversation. Well, I better bring it to a close. Luckily... I want, to, I want to give us fodder to think about. Luckily, we're not the very first Christians who have tried to wrestle with the question of what parts of the law are applicable to us. Turn, if you will, to Acts 15. And we're just going to have to build on this idea on another day. So I want to bring this to the forefront. There was a point in time where
there was a point in time where the church had to deal with this issue. The first Jerusalem council, and this one, the Holy Spirit was pleased to keep for us and inspired for us in the Scriptures. Look at verse 19 and verse 20. This was the judgment. Now, what is the backdrop of this council? What part of the laws of the Old Testament are applicable now? What part of the, law of the Old Testament does the Christian need to follow? Because there were people that were saying... You need to keep it all. These were the legalists. People that, you know, Paul was dealing with in Galatians. You need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses or else you're not a Christian. And that includes keeping the feast. By the way, you've got people that are doing this today. You've got to keep the feast days. You've got to keep the Sabbath. You've got you you to keep all the, the, all the ceremonial cleanliness laws. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. So this question was brought to the very first church. Very early, the Gentile controversy. What parts of the law are applicable to Christians? And so they address this very thing. And here in verse 19, this was their judgment. That's 16. I wonder if it looks like. Verse 15. And to this agree... The words of the prophets as it is written. No, verse, that's 16, 19. Wherefore, my sentence. So James speaks up and he gives the sentence. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which are among the Gentiles, which, who among, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that... Now here are the things that they say apply to all Christians concerning the law that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. And later on in verse 28, we see that Paul Barnabas went forward with other brethren with an epistle to read to all the churches. And this is the epistle in verse 28 and 29. For it seemed good to, for it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than what is necess- than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. For wit- from which, if you keep yourselves, you shall do well, fare ye well. Now, it doesn't solve all controversies here, but here was the judgment of the very first church. These are the parts of the law that appertain to you. Now, we're going to have to get into these a little bit, uh, and that's going to be another day because you all are falling asleep, might fall asleep if I continue on this road. But one thing that they did say, the full, with full consensus of apostolic authority, with a declaration that it came inspired by the Holy Ghost, 
was reiterated time and time again throughout the New Testament with James in Acts 21-25, uh, uh, continued to be taught by Paul in all of his epistles and others that laws concerning sexual immorality are applicable. How do we know? All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we have a very terrible situation going on in Corinth. And Paul writes to them and he says, you all know this is wrong. How'd they know it was wrong? Leviticus 18. Right? He was put, and time and time again, what were they saying? These laws concerning sexual morality are bearing on us today. Now, we're going to have to still figure some things out. Like, for instance, eating the meat was brought. We're going to have to figure out what that means and, and things strangled. We're going to have to talk about what that means on another date. But, but one thing we want to zero in on is when we're reading the law, there are some things that are applicable. The first church judged that they were applicable. The Holy Spirit bore witness that they were applicable. And our conscience bears witness that they're applicable too. God has spoken about some things. And they are binding upon us. And one of the things that he spoke about was sexual morality. So we don't just get to go back and say, well, when it says this in Exodus, uh, that's no longer applicable to us. And when it says this in Leviticus, that's no longer applicable. That's just for the Jews. Or when it says this in Deuteronomy, no, cross that out. We don't have that ability. The judgment of the first church was this is applicable. And we're going to stop there. That's about as far as we can get in today's, I guess you just call it a lecture. <laughs> call it what it is, I guess. My, my hope is that this is something that we'll take seriously. That we don't just, when we come to the subject, we are not fearful as Christians to say there is right here and there is wrong here then this is binding upon us. This is not us trying to bind your conscience to believe in some ambiguity the way we believe in that ambiguity. 